There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, Guy, Nick Mason's source full of secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Are, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Control Store. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then right. I did come up with uh, Nick Mason's all sort of secrets. You did. And the fact that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is U-Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. goes up to 1972, all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) Um, Anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.com. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Settler Control Tour. Thank you. Hello, Gary. Hello, Guy. Sit down. (laughs) Thank you. Wow. So the Beatles... uh Record came out today. Did you have any thoughts on that? I'd had, I did have thought. I mean, it's amazing. It, it seems churlish. Doesn't say anything. I know because you were quite overwhelmed by it, weren't you? I was. I got tearful actually. I got very tearful watching the little film. You know, and Paul saying, you know, how lucky he was to meet those men. You know, and I thought, well, how lucky we are that you met those men because it, it changed our lives. And we probably wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be talking about this brilliant business, would we? No, and especially as. So many as the absolute touch point for pretty much every American guest we've ever had has been the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, yeah. which is still the most widely watched live television broadcast in history. Oh, anywhere it's hasn't been topped. Um, you're meant to go Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to prove that we are the a tap, live the audience tap of today. Wikipedia. <laughs> that we are a live show. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and um, no, I watched I watched the look film and I listened to the music and I was very I was very I, I I welled up. I did, I did. I welled up, you know, over that. And um, but it's very nice who we have on today, and I'm very excited because I'm really looking forward to saying, you know. Oh, come in, Mr. Horn. How lovely to Vardy Arik. Welcome to Boner Podcasts. <laughs> I, have I got the right Mr. Horn? That's, that's, have I, have I, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm Julian. This is my friend Sandy. That's the, <laughs> but it's really great that we've, we've got such a, an amazing person on this first is, Yeah, about who we've, this thing who we both know well, who we've both worked with. Well, I was thinking that's quite interesting, this dynamic, because you've worked for him. Or, you know, you haven't worked for him. Sorry, he's worked for you. Or I don't know, what is that with a producer? You hire a producer, but then he does what you... Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Then, then he, he does... Whereas I've just worked for him in that I've turned up and he's told me what to do. Well, it's interesting, so, that dynamic. We'll talk to him about that. You know, who, who is in charge in the room, is what you're saying. Yeah, who's you know? in charge here? <laughs> and, uh, apparently he wanted to come on the tube, but he'd used up all the tracks. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. <laughs> I'm going to fire my script right out. <laughs> 
Shall we uh, get him on? Shall we? Um, so, th- yes, let, let's give a little intro. And it's great that we're here at Cambridge Audio, uh, by yes, the way, course, because yes. this is a man who sort of defines high-end audio listening. I, You know, I've often... He's one of the few people who... He's not really a producer. I mean... I will always check out anything he's done because whatever, whoever the artist is, it's a Trevor Horn record, first and foremost. And that's what I'm listening for. And I'm sorry. Yeah, I kind of apologise to everyone who's ever worked with him that that's the way I feel. Um, but yeah, and he's the man who shaped the 80s, which is, which is what Absolutely. we want to talk about. And, uh, and he's a bass player. And there was something, there was something else I was going to say and I've lost it. There was a reason for that. It was I was building to a crescendo. Yeah, almost. yeah, you, you, yeah. Did I put you off? You did. You, yeah. I, I got you to lose your climax again. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> Too much is being revealed. Um, let's so, get him on. Let's get him on. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. Well, it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found. Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. That caused a big problem in the band, actually. I was having too much fun. Thank you guys for still being around, still making music, still being into it, and doing this podcast. It, it's uh, it's fabulous. Well, I get the feeling that us three should go for a pint. That's what I think. I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah, to, to get good at something. When we were Recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Keep on rocking! <laughs> Trevor Horn! Who says that? Wow. Thank you, Trevor. For our listeners, should point out that Trevor literally ran onto the stage there. It was incredibly impressive. This is the second time you've been on. You were on really early days when we were useless. Our fifth. You were our fifth guest. And yeah, I really listened the to fifth. this morning. Yeah, as a, when it was literally when, when it was just our address book of what mates can we possibly blag to be on our podcast. And it shows, I must say, because um, we're not very good, I don't think. Not in that episode, no, not in that episode. But if you want to know... I thought you were okay. I didn't have a problem with it. Yeah, oh, but I think you. I think we're just we're spit slicker now. We right. we yeah, I, producer hoping. psychology. Yeah, I've <laughs> seen it all before. You know all your tricks, Trevor. Um, but we spoke a lot then about your upbringing and your you know first introduction into music and your and all this, the a lot of the great stuff you did in the seventies. And I suppose we'd and like working to- in a radiator host company. There was quite, <laughs> like, it was quite good. the tricks you used to do about trying to look busy. Yeah, it's amazing when you work in a, in a kind of factory and you had the kind of job I had. I used to just pick up a piece of paper, say, see you in a minute, and I'd look important and go off, and I was, wasn't doing anything, you know. There was a band that worked down in the technical department, I used to go and talk to them. And I'd go off for an hour walking around the factory, I hated it. <laughs> Do you know, there was a thing I used to have for getting into gigs, which was, you just pick up a box, and just go, excuse me. Excuse me, because if you've got a box, you're clearly meant to be taking it into the gig. (laughs) That's a great one. I don't don't think it would work now. But, But, you know, so I suppose we're going to concentrate more today on on the 80s and how, you know, as far as a lot of people are concerned, you sort of invented the sound of that decade. I mean, I I have been aspirational every time I sit in a studio. There's always a little voice, and it says to me, what would, what would Trevor, Trevor do? No, and I've just remembered the thing I was climaxing to for the intro, oh. which is the whole thing of Trevor's records, which is that I've described your records as 
They're, they're like Maxfield Parish paintings. Or something. Your records are a world that you want to step into and live in. <laughs> it's very nice of you. Yeah, Thank yeah. you. Is it, it's quite, is it cheap? It's probably more expensive to make one of his records than a buying a house anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, and a lifestyle for 70 years. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it was a, a pretty exciting time at the start of the 80s because I had... Uh, I don't know if you if if you ever tried uh, using a sequencer when they you know I've, I heard the very first ones were almost impossible weren't they I mean you couldn't get a squeak out of the damn things by the sort of 1982 I, I had a sequencer that I could work and I could lock that to drums and that that was an amazing thing because you think about it you couldn't do that in the 70s you know you could actually lock fake drums and bass and it was a much better lock than MIDI as well because it was CV and gate you know. So when you made the Buggles record, was it? Did you? Was that a real drummer was, on there? Yeah, it was a, uh, the Buggles record. We we couldn't get the only sequence on the on the whole Buggles record is a thing going on living in the plastic age, and that was just like a ruler that we'd recorded. Uh, we 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 didn't know how to work in sequences, so it was all played. Do you know what's funny? Because I, I was listening to, I've, I've been a fantastic. I'm just refreshing my memory of of your whole catalogue, but listening to the Buggles albums today, and I can't remember what song it is, but what's interesting is one of them has an instrumental motif, which is so Joe Meek, and you suddenly realise that's kind of where you were coming from, <laughs> it, in a way, because it was, it was so pre-electronic, if you, were, if you will. Yeah, he was, he was amazing, Joe Meek. I mean, people forget about him because he shot people when he died, you know, when he killed himself. I know, sh <laughs> shoot one landlady. <laughs> they never forgive you, do they? <laughs> he wouldn't let it lie. Yeah, it's, uh, I guess there is a bit of it. Yeah, minor chords and dramatic guitar parts, yeah. yeah but there's an actual organ part, which is quite tell story. Yeah. But I think that's what you were doing with that album. There was a pastiche in that album as well, wasn't there? There was this combination of, of, of modern... But it was a kind of, it was a sort of nostalgia for the future. Yes. You were inventing steampunk as well. Oh my God. I don't know. I was trying to write songs about technology because I was a bit bored of songs about love. And since it was all a sort of techno-y thing, it was just anything I could think of to do with technology. Well, like, oh, a little sidebar. I don't know if I've ever told you this, but do you know that Mel Smith's favourite song that he always used to play whenever anyone went around the house was Elstree? Oh, right. Well, it's we played that on the American tour this year. Yeah. Which, I'm, yeah. which is an homage to the, to the studios. Uh, to the right? studios, yeah. It's funny when you're in, like, Denver saying, this is about a little suburb, suburb of London called Elstree. Street. That's what I said, you know, uh -huh. that you'd never have heard of, but that's where they made Alfred Hitchcock films. No, but it was all the ITC. It was The Saint. It was Department S. It was yeah. Madeleine Hopkirk. It was the same. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Just feel me and Trevor on, on, on this sort of triumvirate of people. There's you and there's Jeff Downs and there's, and there's Bruce Woolley. But Bruce ended up not being in the Buggles and doing his own version of, your, of, of Video Kill the Radio Star before you did your version. We had a group, me, Jeffrey and Bruce and a drummer. I can't remember the drummer's name. And we were, we were playing... We weren't playing Video Kill the Radio Star, but we'd written some songs and we were playing them... And Bruce had written these other songs, which I thought were a bit cheesy, but they were sort of very commercial. Hey, baby, you look so fine in the candlelight or something. And we played on the demos of, of those songs. And suddenly, we, you know, we, we're rehearsing for months. This record label's playing. Suddenly Bruce tells me and Jeff, I've, I've, I've got a deal with uh, CBS Records. With Mike Hurst is signing me. 
he really likes, you know, all the demos of Candlelight and everything. And so I was like, so what are we going to do with the, the, all the other songs, you know, Video Killed Radio Star and all those other songs? And, the, and Bruce said, well, they're not commercial. And I was like, well, I think they are. I Cut said, well, <laughs> Yeah, if you're not going to do it, then I'm going to do it. Is that okay with you? And he said, yeah, fine. So that's when I called Jeff up and said, Jeff, we're going to do the Boggles, you and me. This will be different from before because instead of me hiring you, we'll both be in the band. And he said, who's singing? I said, me. <laughs> and he said, why don't we put your voice through a radio speaker? Oh, what a fucking great idea. Yeah, yeah it was his <laughs> idea, yeah. yeah. But, but, but... Uh he, 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 Bruce went off and did that record. Did, well, did that by piss the, you off his at was all? a lot angrier, wasn't it? His version of it. Uh, it was he, his like, was a sort of a group. He was trying to get a group Bruce off the ground. In the camera club. The camera club, and it's much harder to launch a group. And you know, our, I mean, our version was like it made made Abba look like Led Zeppelin. I thought at the time, you know, <laughs> it was so poppy. Uh, Bruce's version was just, was a throwaway. It was done like a, th a throwaway. But I, I do remember one moment when we were working on our version and Bruce now was doing it live with his band. You know, he had... He had um, Nigel, the bass player. I yeah, some, he had a really yeah. good band. And I went to see them play it. And at the end, he sang that line, put the blame on VCR. Oh, wow. He never told me about that line. I wrote most of the other lyrics, but... So uh, <laughs> I wrote it down. <laughs> Put it straight on our version. <laughs> Did you learn anything from producing that, do you think, that, that put you in good stead for your future? Yeah, I learned that if you do a good demo, you better copy it absolutely exactly. You know, otherwise your goose is cooked. We made a great demo of it that, uh, that we couldn't use because it belonged to Tina Charles. And to use it, we would have had to sign a contract with why, her. Why did it belong to Tina Charles? Because she financed the uh, recording session. Uh, she was your girlfriend. I was no, not at that point. She was long since stopped being my girlfriend. She was married, but she was still paying for your demos. All well, right. well, she. You see, <laughs> interesting arrangement. I'd been. Uh, <laughs> Tina was great, and I'm not going to say anything bad about Tina. She she was so funny, um, and I was her MD for for a long time. I learned a lot from. And I was also the tour manager. What a mug I was. You know, the, uh, the first tour, when, I, uh, when we had to do the accounts at the end, I had to turn over like 50 quid. I'd, people had had money and it had gone and I hadn't taken a you know, record of it, you know. So for, from then on, anybody wanted hookers at three o'clock in the morning and wanted an you know, advance of $100, I'd make them sign a book. No, no one told me about all that. Uh, <laughs> so you know, I was working. So with I was going to say, Tina Charles Band sound pretty wild. <laughs> well, it could it could be fun to. I, I remember we, we we did a tour in Israel once, and uh, right at the end of it, we were all celebrating up in the uh, some big hotel, and Tina and her husband were getting quite drunk, and because I'd been Tina's boyfriend, I always had a sort of fairly realistic idea of what was going on. You know, <laughs> and at a certain point in the evening, Tina said, Try, here's a carrier bag, take you back to London. So I said, What's in it, Tina? <sighs> Look. So I opened it up, it's full of money. So I said, How much is in here, Tina? I don't know. I said, Right. I went off to my hotel room and counted it and made out a sheet. And I came, it was 29,000 pounds in cash. 
And which I in made those it, days. I mean, which in those days, still in these days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a shitload of money. And uh, I made a sign for it. And I came back through the customs with it. And I didn't know it was smuggling money, wow. you know. So that was Tina. She was a bit wacko. And she, she had this idea that she wanted to invest in the music business a, a bit. And I said, well, I've got a project for you, the Buggles. And she said, what's that? And I explained, it's this song we've got, you know. And then she said, who's singing? And I said, uh, Bruce Woolley, I think, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> of course it wasn't, it was me, but there you go. Was um, <laughs> your dream at that point then to, to, to keep the buggles going and being, a, being a, a famous group that just kept on making hit, hit albums? Or did, did you always hanker after being a producer? Well, well I was really, a, Jeff and I made so many... Records. I used to produce songwriters for for publishers, you know, and and do I, those tapes exist? By the way, do you still have some of them? I've got, I've got a few are, bits. Are, are, are there sort of like records that we'd know that you've did? Those? No, no. There'd be things like a guy called John Howard. I did quite a few tracks with him. There's a list. I did 48 different songs the year before I had a hit with video, and I made two and a half thousand quid. I had it in my diary because I always used to spend. The tour accounting really came in handy, didn't it? Yeah, it did. <laughs> I didn't pay any tax, but uh, yeah. So I so don't know if there's a statute of limitations on that. So to, oh no! It all, well, as soon as I had a hit, it all had to be cleared up. You know, I went through like two or three years where I never answered the door. You know, those times. <laughs> Not even the paper boy. I suppose I'm getting around to you doing dollar really, which is right. Which was your big. I, I don't know. I consider that as your breakthrough as a producer. I mean, certainly I became aware of it and her, hearing those records and thinking, wow, the production on that, it's just so different. Yeah. Well, that was my late wife. She, she, she you know, when, when I split up with my partner, I said, well, at least you can manage me now. And she said, if I'm going to manage you, I think you should be a producer. And uh, she said, I'll get you somebody really good to produce. And then she came up with Dollar. Now, obviously, I was a little bit shocked, but... So a dollar, you know, I, I did three nights at Madison Square Garden. So you'd already been in Yes. Yeah, yeah. How, yeah, that, course, happen yeah. how had that happened? Because you didn't yes. really have an <laughs> obvious track record for Yes. Did no, I think? didn't. Um, no, you're right. Uh, the Yes thing happened purely because the Buggles ended up with a manager who was the same manager as Yes. And that was partly because Brian, my, uh, Brian, Lane, Brian Lane. Because my late wife had worked with him with a band because her brother... John, who's, who, who isn't in the business anymore, uh, had produced uh, the first Foreigner album, uh, along with Gary Lyons, and he was producing another band, and they were managed by Brian Lane. And somehow, so we got friendly with Brian Lane, and then we needed a manager. We thought, why not Brian Lane? You know, we were in the early days where, you know, with Brian Lane, limos seemed to turn up, and we thought limos <laughs> were like part of the whole thing. It's when you get the bill, right? At the end of the month, you realise, fuck me. Look at the cost of these limos. I thought they were free. <laughs> like, is anything free? And we met, um, so I knew that I was going to meet Chris Squire at some point if we had Brian Lane. You were a big fan of Yes. Obviously. I was a big fan of Yes, yeah. So we met Chris Squire, and uh, he invited us down to his house down in Virginia Water, and we went down one evening. What was funny was when we went down there, his kids were waiting at the door to get our autographs because we were the Buggles at the time, you see. And Chris really liked one of the songs on the album called Living in the Plastic Age. He just liked the whole sound of it. And we were at his place and we were talking and he was 
It was an amazing house, you know, it had a minstrel gallery. Chris's wife, of course, it did. Chris's <laughs> wife had hair down to her knees. It's, com- it's compulsory you know, for any uh, progger, isn't it? It's it like was serious, serious progsville. <laughs> and uh, and I said to him, I don't suppose you're looking for any songs for yes, because I've got a song for yes. And he said, Oh, play it to me. So I picked up a guitar and I played. You know, forty-five uh, minutes later, hello, the edge. <laughs> 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 No, at this point it was fairly short. And I played him a bit of this song and sang it, and he said, God, you sound a little bit like John Anderson. And from that moment, and then he said, why don't you come down and rehearse this song with the band? And I said, will John be there? Shall I show it to him? And he went, no, John won't be there. Uh, but you should come down, you know. I was very nervous going down and hearing your favourite band in a rehearsal room and then getting your daft little song, you know, and seeing what they're going to do with it. That was a, quite an experience anyway. I ended up joining the band. Of course, I discovered that they'd fallen out with John Anderson over money and, and they'd parted company and they had a tour booked in America and they didn't want to cancel it, so they needed somebody. So it was drama. And the album was called Sounds Drama. Sounds like yeah. it all round. Yes. It what, was, was, what was the name of the song? Fly? Uh, Fly from here wasn't even on drama. The song that I signed to Chris was, we did it 12 years later, 12, actually longer than that later. 20, oh, yes, 30 years later. And, and it must be, so you were straight out onto this mass arena tour, and are you still silver suit and the big glasses? No, by this point, I've, I've changed my outfit a little bit, obviously for yes. <laughs> Figuring that the silver jacket... Silver I had cape. a, black, I had a black, uh, black jacket with Hollywood on the back and a pair of spandex trousers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's a pretty, it's pretty funny. What did, the, what did the yes folk think? Well, the first gig was Maple Leaf Gardens, Toronto. You know it, don't you? Oh, my you? God, yeah. It's, it's pretty big, isn't it? It's a pretty big gig, yeah. And the night before, we had two and a half weeks of rehearsal and we never got from one end of the set to the other. <laughs> Every fucking night something broke down. It was Chris Squire's bass pedals. And I, I remember at a certain point in the rehearsals, a guy called Claude Johnson-Taylor, who was uh, Steve Howe's roadie, got on the mic and said, Chris Squire, you need to be fired from this band. You're fucking about. You're fucking dragging this band down. <laughs> the whole bit started shouting at Chris. And I remember Chris was working on his bass pedals. He turned around and he said, Steve, control your roadie. <laughs> <laughs> so I put Igor back. <laughs> <laughs> so we never got through the set. And, uh, and the night before... The first show, I went to see Chuck Berry with the woman who was running the tour, and Chuck Berry was playing in a stadium, and we went in, and it was uh, it, it was somewhere in Toronto, and I said to her, "This is bigger than the Maple Leaf Gardens, isn't it?" She said, "Oh no, Maple Leaf Gardens three times the size of here." The fuck. We're well, on tomorrow night, you know. Yeah, because how much? Oh, well, all your live work till then had been, been bass player, bass player, and a dance band. How did you so, get on? How did I get on? Well, funny enough, at the start, it wasn't too bad because uh, I, I, I was fresh. And, you know, on the, fir- you know, the first night, I, like te- 20 minutes before we went on, I said to Chris, so you, you do the talk, you're doing the talking. And he went, no, Stinger does the talking. I was like, me? I was, fuck off, I'm not going to do the talking. He said, you'll have to because I'm not going to talk. And I... Can I do the receipts instead? Ah, I could hear my st- 
<laughs> I can hear my voice on the on the opening show. Hang on, this is a song called Tempest Fugit. I'm, I'm a bit terrified. And the first night, as it got going, I thought, you know, it's funny. It's not really that much difference between Hammersmith Palais and no. Maple Leaf Gardens Toronto. It's a stage. You I know. mean, honestly, it's, yeah, it, to be honest, telling yourself it, it, is, <laughs> it is easier playing a, a bigger place than a smaller place because you can't see the whites of their eyes, yeah. most people. You know. 50,000 people you don't know is easier than 50 people you do. Yeah. You know, it's true. Yeah. It's very true. But, but let's go. So, production now. It's, yeah, so, yeah. Jill wanted you to go into that into that world and and dollar obviously became almost like a calling card for you didn't it was did yeah. you did you find because that was just you wasn't it basically doing that yeah, it was, you, you was, the, the yeah four, i made the, the records yeah which is basically which is in a way it's quite funny that there's sort of parallels with the barbie movie or something isn't it you just invented this world and this story yeah i got totally into the world of dollar the little techno world with the two little characters in it but also the sort of the, just the sound effects this that you you seem to arrange in this kind of you know it wasn't just put the cello there it was these kind of th oh no it was very very specific like on mirror on mirror mirror it, you know well dollar was at the start it was pre-fairlight there's a bit where it goes and then there's a big crash of a champagne bottle well that's me with with a, a big spanner and a tarpaulin and bottles and smashing it straight onto the, you know what I mean, straight onto the tape. You didn't have a sample and you couldn't fly it. So you actually had to do it. Um, but what was your inspiration for the madness of that sort of stuff? Well, I didn't think I was mad. I was just being visual, you know. But yeah. I thought Dollar would jump, like, popping out of a champagne bottle, you know, yeah. like of a cork. And the record sort of pops out of a bottle, you know, kind of thing. Because there's a thing that comes, which has become very much a trademark of yours, I see, which is that thing of the sudden event. Yeah. The sudden unexpected event, which yeah. just happened, you know, dilla ding, don't yeah. gang, you know. Was that a sort of was that a sort of sample world that you were entering into? Or was that that was something that was always in your head? Giving people sort of ear candy. Well, I didn't come from a background of playing in a band for years where you can get away with being dull, you know? <laughs> I came from a world where you only had, you know, thirty seconds to grab them, you know, and so I thought like that. Mm. I mean, I have to say, after yes, I, I kind of opened things out a bit. I wasn't uh, quite so tied to that short format. But I was always thinking about singles because I thought, what's the point in uh, having a producer unless they can give you a hit record? You might yeah. as well do it yourself. Oh, unless they can produce it. So singles are always much more pressured than album tracks. How know? did ABC come your way? Was it through that track? It was no Jill, songs. wasn't it, again? Uh, it was Jill. Jill. Jill spotted them and she thought I would be, it would be a good fit. And then I met them and, you know, they were bright kids from, from Sheffield who went to university. They were funny and they were full of ideas, you know. But also the, the, but for them, because of your perception, apart from the yes thing, which probably wouldn't mean much to ABC, is because they're obviously coming from a cooler sort of almost neuromantic electro thing yeah and, and you know you they must have think thought well he's this big pop guy did was there a bridge you had to cross with them well yes and no i mean the, the, the thing was when when we first met i had no idea that i was the 14th producer i thought i was <laughs> i thought i was wow. checking them out to see if i wanted to work with him you know what i mean i wasn't thinking like that and they had a magazine a songwriting magazine and it had a sort of cartoon of a Hoagie Carmichael-like character at the piano with a cigarette writing songs. And 
they were really, they, they showed me a couple of magazines. And I said, oh, you mean the magazines? Check out my magazines. And I had like lots of wrestling magazines. I used to really like, you know, wrestling. Okay. Mick McManus? <laughs> no, American wrestlers. You oh. know, the guys that... Uh, Don't be ridiculous. American wrestlers. <laughs> the guys that have sort of flames shooting from their cod pieces and wow. stuff like that. Because the magazines are just hilarious to read, you know. Like tattoo magazines are funny magazines to read, you know. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I, like them. I, I think so you're on the wrong podcast, Trevor. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So I whipped out my wrestling well, so magazine. We haven't been briefed, clearly. <laughs> have we? My notes have nothing. And they were into it. And they, I remember they said to me, if you produce us, you'll be the most fashionable producer in the world because we're the most fashionable band in the world. But I think what you're, you were, where you kind of saw eye to eye is that Martin wrote very cinematic lyrics, almost film noir lyrics. Yeah. And, and so what you offered them was a cinematic production. And, and I guess your relationship with Anne Dudley was important at that point. Yeah, because Anne, Anne was uh, really an important part of that. But, you know, there was a funny moment on that album that, that involved you, even though you weren't there, which was... Um, remember, while I was actually working on that album, I worked on Instinction yeah. for you. And they were a bit pissed off with me about that, right? What do you do in working with Spandau Ballet? You know, I was like, well, I like Spandau Ballet. If I would work with them if I want to, I would... Wanted to fix up a track for them, right? Hmm. Spanned our fucking ballet, right? <laughs> and we were we were working one night on one of the tracks. I can't remember what it was. Forever together. And JJ, the the, the Fairlight guy, had a sample of a guitar, and he was trying to play like a heavy metal guitar. He was trying to play it over the track. It didn't sound very good. And he said, "Now nah, that's not working." And I said, "No, nah, no, nah, JJ, just leave it. Just leave it." I said, "Gary, just leave it, just for a minute or two, just till tomorrow." And the next day, we put the track up. Mark White, the guitar player, came in. And we're playing the track back. And this bit of guitar played. He said, What's, what the fuck's that? And I said, oh, uh, Gary was over last night. <laughs> Gary <laughs> Kemp. And he went, Gary Kemp was here? I said, yeah, he came down. He was hanging. And he heard this track. And he said, how about I put a bit of guitar on it? <laughs> And of course he said, you fucking lad, Gary Kemp play on our track. Of course, in the end, I He loves tell. wrestling magazines. Because <laughs> 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 in those days, we all hated each other. Know, there was a lot so of funny, everybody all was bad, young. That's with all movers, all bands, all yeah. everyone hates each other. Yeah. Yeah. Was, 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 it, um, was it Malcolm next, or, or was it Frankie? It was Malcolm next. It was, it was Malcolm next, yeah. Which is, uh, which is a really... It was interesting, I, 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 I was listening to that album earlier, but also I looked at the... Um, Looked at the video on YouTube of Duck Rock yeah. and all the comments underneath of all these people who are now sort of in their 50s and just saying how important yeah. that record was because we were all into hip hop and, stu and stuff, yeah. but of course, no one else knew about it outside of West 11, as far as I'm concerned. Oh. Um, and it was, and you know, the world famous Supreme team and all that. It was, yeah, that I know, it really was a, did break it. But was, the world. It, was it an amaze, a, a major moment for you when Malcolm came to you? And, and, and you did, did you find that his ideas were triggering anything that you yeah you're kidding he played me he you know he told me that they scratched records in america, in america. somebody says what you know what and then i heard the god i never heard that before and you know he had this tape of the world's famous supreme team and he said you know in, in new york like all the black kids really like depeche mode I said, what you know what i mean it just didn't i thought 
Africa Bambata. Yeah, but but you know, then I went over there with him, and I met Africa Bambata. I had a very brief conversation with him. Um, <laughs> he was introduced, and you know, he's, he was a fairly uh, interesting-looking individual. And I said, "Who's your favorite band?" And he said, "The Guess Who." I was like, "The Guess Who?" That's a Canadian band. They turned into Buckman Turner Overdrive. You like them? And he said, yeah, I've got a live album. Wow. It's got the best drum breaks on it. And then I realized, oh, right. ah, he's just scratching the drum breaks, you know. You had to be there. It was a great time, you know. And I came back to England. And, you know, and Malcolm had this daft idea. He wanted to release, you know, Buffalo Girls. We'd done it, we'd recorded it down in Tennessee, and it was awful. It was, you know, first Buffalo Girl around the outside, you know, with a, just like a country thing. I mean, and I, I felt so embarrassed by it, you know. I didn't know what to do about it. And, and one dinner time, he was talking about, I want to make a rapping, scratching record called E.T. Come Home. And I said... <laughs> of course he did. <laughs> I said, why don't we do Buffalo Girls as a rapping, scratching record? And he went, yeah. I thought, God, this could be it. I could get myself off the hook. Because I was dreading coming back to England and playing the record label... The sort of country and western, I mean, what could you, you know what I mean? Because the beauty of that album and those tracks is all the samples, the radio stuff that you have talking. I mean, where did you get those? Were they were they made new or were they literally recorded? That, that was from the world's famous Supreme Team. You know, we flew them over. Then we had to get them decks. And then they weren't very keen. They hated Radio 1. Like, fucking Radio 1, you know? One minute it's this and next minute it's it's terrible. They, they couldn't get their heads into it. And uh, I tried to explain the Fairlight to them, but they didn't get it. But um, I had a drum machine, and I said, what's your favorite beat? So about four hours later, we finally got... And, you know, I, just, I had an Oberheim, so I went... Or something like that, you know, and just made a groove. Then I gave them these, these uh, records, and they started to scratch them over it. And, and that's it. All came out because it was so. Some of it was so good. They would say, "Hey, man, this stuff's fresh. You know, it's fresh." And sometimes I didn't understand what they were talking about, but <laughs> they would say, "They would say fresh." Uh, and then, and then I said to them, "You know, you gotta, you gotta, uh, we gotta wrap this Buffalo Girls thing." They went, "What?" I said, "Look, here are the lyrics." They looked at it and they went, "Nah, no, we're not wrapping this." Well, I said, "Why not?" They said, "You can't wrap this. This is a clan, Ku Klux Klan." I was like, no, no, it's not. It's just a country dance. And I said, look, I'll show you. And I had the drum track, you know, do 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 do. And I went out in the studio and I went, you know, first Buffalo Girl go round the outside, round the outside, and rapped for a bit. And then I looked in the control room, I couldn't see them. And <laughs> I thought, oh God, they've gone. So <laughs> I, I went back in the control room. They hadn't gone. They were both weeping with laughter <laughs> and lying on the floor. And they got up, they were like, hey, Trev, man, we never knew you could rap. <laughs> <laughs> they thought it was the funniest thing ever. Well, but in the end, I had a good time with them, you know. They, I mean, poor old Malcolm didn't have any kind of a sense of rhythm. And we tried, we tried everything. You know, we would try stuff, you know. They would start it off, we would have a beat, and they would say, hey, we're flying over Texas with our man Malcolm McLaren. And, and some music, and Anne would play some music, and then Martin would go, oh, yeah, we do it, whatever. And they'd go, fuck, man. Malcolm, <laughs> you are the biggest vibe killer. <laughs> <laughs> 
know, but but in the end, you know, uh, I he, he was he was a real sweetheart. I said to him, "Give me a day or two. Just give me two days with all this stuff, and I'll I'll do it. I'll I'll make the record." And I I, I thought I'll do it like an abstract painting of a single. You know, have all the yeah. all the sort of uh, the bits happening at the right time, but they'll all be the wrong bits, kind of thing. You know. Ah, like a cubist kind of look. Yeah, yeah, and it worked. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss but then there's the African stuff yeah you went to Africa and, and the you? adventures there that sounds like really really nuts well being stuck in a studio for 20 nights in a row with 19 people because it was apartheid nobody could go out and I had like an assortment of Kosas and uh, Zulus and like four or five Zulu ladies who were the most amazing singers we were just all in the studio all night together. If you did a good overdub, I'd roll you a joint, especially, you know. Um, I sent them out, I, I, you know, first first evening when I was there. I said, I don't suppose you could get me any grass, could you? There's nobody from the sea I did. And uh, I gave him $20, and they said, this is a lot of money. The next day they came in, they had a carrier bag full of weed. Oh, God, <laughs> I fucking go to prison for this, you know. So I gave most of it back. Getting to on the plane with another carrier bag. <laughs> <laughs> so we, so we, it, it, it was very congenial. We we were there from eight, eight in the evening to eight in the morning for nineteen nights, and we did a load of really good stuff. They do there's a double dutch, living on the road in Soweto, all kinds of things. Did that? Did you get influenced? Did the go-go stuff that you later did on with Slaves of the Rhythm? Did that sort of come out of your? And it was trip? all township stuff. These guys could play that. You know, do 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 do. They could just turn it on and play it for hours. And Malcolm was writing songs over it, you know, weird songs. Because I was thinking with Slaves to the Rhythm, it was when you were working on that. I know we jumped Frankie there, but I mean, you, you. Well, Go Go was the Go Go was the thing. It was a really brief fashion thing. I mean, I loved it. Reds and the Boys and all those. Where did it come from? That it came from Washington. Washington, Yeah, it was a really specific little club scene. It was basically P Funk, wasn't it? But it was just that one twelve eight groove, is what it was. And there was this scene that 
it was just a really small. It was just the Island Records. Chuck thing. Brown, the Soul Searches, yeah. somebody Washington, and, and who is the guy who had the white? Uh, who I loved because he had white Ray Bands, which I thought was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. It was on a Go Go compilation. I had. Oh, but um, because I think you know you you from what I gather you you had the songs laid to the rhythm, but it was. You couldn't quite get a handle on how to do it, and Go-Go was your in, but yeah, it took you it was, a while it, to it, get there. It was very straight. Think about Go-Go, Go-Go concerts, because I went to two. I, I saw EU, you remember Experience oh, Unlimited? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were really good. The music never stopped. That was the point, yeah. The, the whole band point started, is the group, yeah. and then when the band got to the end of its set, the drummer would keep going, and the next band would take over, and wow. the show would so go on It was kind of like a live answer to hip-hop, wasn't it? <coughs> it, in, it was, yeah. Was, you know. It was, and... Uh, I, you know, I, I, I thought, I'm, you know, I'm probably only going to do one record with Grace Jones. I wanted to do something, you know, I wanted it to be good because, I mean, you think about her stuff, think about yeah. my Jamaican guy and things like that. Vion Rose and all that. Yeah, like Vion Rose, fucking great tracks. And I didn't want mine, mine to be the dismal one that everybody skipped. <laughs> and, uh, and the first version we did of it, I didn't like much. And uh, was, it, was it written for her? No, it was actually... With Bruce. Yeah, I, uh, Bruce, Bruce wrote it with, with yeah. a guy called Simon Darlow. I wrote a bit of it. Uh, but then... Fantastic set of chords. It's a fantastic. But Bruce yeah, came up with those chords yeah. much later in the day. He came up with those chords. Why? Because everybody thought I was mad with this go-go rhythm idea. And, it, you know, I had all these guys and I tried to teach them an arrangement. And I realised the only arrangement that they knew was start and stop. Right? Anything that happened in between just fucking happened. That was it. And the idea, you go here, there, oh boy. You know, nobody seemed to be able to get a handle on the arrangement at all. And, you know, we were going around in circles and trying to get them to change and everything. But there was one bit of drumming that the guy did when they were setting up. Was that got, William Juju House? Yeah, Juju, he was brilliant. I got it on my, you know when you used to have those little cassette players with a speaker in them? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah I had yeah. one of those. And I had his, uh, this one bit where he's warming up, and I kept saying to Steve, I love this. This rhythm, this. Why don't we just use this? Let's send them all home, and we'll, use, we'll do something with this, which is kind of what we did. When did those chords come about? Because uh, well, you said that was a lot later, because that really no, transformed No, that, that was on the same day that I had that thing. Bruce suddenly started to play those chords, and we were like, God, I like that. You know, that could really work. And we had to, we were staying in the Park Meridian. They kicked us out of the studio. We went back to the Park Meridian, carrying loads of gear, you know, like Carry speakers, <laughs> mixer, <laughs> drum machine. Everyone looking at us very suspiciously and set them up in my room and finished, it, finished off the idea for the song. Wow. And then invited Chris Blackwell around to play it to him. He was horrified. Was Grace, was Grace <laughs> singing on it, by the way? No, at this point it was just sort of, experimental you know but I was very enthusiastic about it uh, I think think Chris wasn't sure you know <laughs> and then we spent two days making the drum track what was Grace like to work with because I would be quite late. terrified I think she was late oh, yeah. we've not asked late. her on the podcast have we <laughs> you we ask <laughs> oh you should get Grace on she's a good laugh person, yeah she's a really good laugh she's funny uh, Stay at arm's length, obviously. Not really. No, she was. She was really nice. Last time I, I saw her, I saw her actually in the in the Nicholas the, the the wine shop on Holland Park Avenue, and she was speaking fluent French to the guy behind the counter. Mm. Are you sure? 
<laughs> I, I was trying to persuade her to come down to the studio. I called her up a couple of times and and she said, um, oh, I'm going through a terrible, terrible time. I just set fire to all my boyfriend's clothes. And I was like, really? Yes, they're all burning. It's going to be real trouble. And I was like, that was Dolph, what's his face? Dolph Lundgren. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dolph oh Lundgren, yeah. Those are big clothes. But did she get, <laughs> did she get this? This, this was a massive, ex- expansive record with one song, really, wasn't it? I mean, yeah, it was, well, well, so when she finally came down to the studio, it was a Sunday in New York, it was the power station. Remember the power station? Uh, yeah. Of course I remember And uh, yeah, she came down on the Sunday and uh, we played her the track. I was wondering how she was going to take, take to it. But she got it straight away. She said, oh, I get the idea. She said, it's the end of the day and I'm tired. Ah, she sat down and Bruce started to feed her the lines. Did she say it? You know, work all day as men who know. Boy, we were thrilled. It sounded great, you know. But and when did the idea? When did it become an album? Oh, that was that was when really insanity started to creep in. Uh, because she didn't really do anything other than that, did she? You basically just had to song? have a load of people talking about uh, her. Well, yeah, we did. We did a couple of other versions because Dave Gilmore plays yeah, in one version. I listened. For, I listened for the. You actually mentioned that in the last one. And I listened for that in the fashion show one, which, by the way, has some fabulous fretless bass on it. Is that you? Yeah, no, it's a Sinclavier. I wish I could say oh, wow. it was. It's a Sinclavier. Okay. But uh, no, but there's another lead guitarist on it because I was thinking cause Steve Lipson and him. There you go, because I think starts thinking, that's not David. And then suddenly there's this, and it's like, oh, there he is. There's my yeah. boy. Yeah. <laughs> was, when, it's a funny thing about David when he first played on it. I, I said, Dave, you know, that, that was great, but he didn't play a single right note. And I've <laughs> realised why, because it's an E flat. <laughs> so he tuned his guitar down <laughs> and things got better, you know. We were all in E and then everything was fine. Let's talk about Frankie. Cause, exactly. Because, yes. I mean, oh. you know, there, there wasn't a musician in, a, in the 80s who wasn't jealous and envious of those records. Okay, I've got, I want to tell a story, which is, I want to tell a story, which is um, the first, when I was on the tube... Uh, I told you not to tell that story. <laughs> <laughs> is this with Ice House? With Ice House, yeah. And that was the week that Frankie were on it as an unsigned, undiscovered band. And we were told by our management that um, that you were going to be watching the show with a view to maybe producing Ice House. But I'm wondering if they just told us that afterwards. That's the first. Make- that <laughs> face of Trevor's just said that's the first he's heard of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do you know what? That might be true. Oh, ah. That might be true. That Why might didn't you produce myself? <laughs> I don't know. But I, I think um, because when, when I actually watched that show, I was really pissed off with Yes because Chris Squire had been six hours late at a studio that was costing £150 an hour. And oh, so I'll show you. I'll produce Frankie Goes to Hollywood. <laughs> <What's that? laughs> oh, we missed Owner of a Lonely Heart. We'll get to Owner of a Lonely Heart. So I was, I was pretty uh, angry with him at the time. And I kind of wasn't speaking. I was sitting in the corner. And... Uh, that's the first time I saw them. And then uh, uh, at the time, you know, it wasn't a great version of Relax. But it, no, was, it was more of a standard it was, yeah. workout, wasn't it? And then I heard, uh, I heard them on, the ra- on Radio 1. They'd done a John Peel session. Right. And I heard it again on, you know, I heard it. And, you know, when you hear something a second time, I thought, I could do something with that. Really could do something with that. Was that Paul Morley helping you to reach out or persuading you? No, Paul Morley didn't want to sign them. He hated the idea because wow. I went in after I heard it on the radio on Kid Jensen's show. I went in the next morning. I said, I want to sign Frankie Goes to Hollywood. 
I don't care what it costs. God, I just think those T-shirts could have been Ice House say on uh, the unemployed. <laughs> what, <laughs> what, was it? <laughs> what, what was it that, that you heard in that I don't know. I, I, mean, I mean, I heard Holly's voice and Holly's got a, you know, he's yeah. still got a good voice. He had a great voice back then. And, and something about the track. I mean, the funny thing is when I actually came to do the track, I hadn't thought about it much and suddenly I had to deal with it. I thought, God, how much, there's not really a whole lot there. <laughs> what was your key in? What was the moment you thought, I've got this track now? Well, it was on the fourth version when I... Uh, it was a late night, wasn't it? Yeah, well, no, it was one of those kind of things that started in the afternoon. And the band had gone home to, to get their uh, dole money because they had to go every week. And, uh, <laughs> and so it's there was just me, Lippo and Andy Richards and whatever in the control room. And somebody brought over some really powerful um, Nepalese temple ball stuff. I was in the control room listening to the version that we were working on, which was the Frankies playing it. And I was hating it, you know? You know, when you're like, fuck, we spent two weeks on this. I'm so sick of this. If I could go, if I could leave it, I'd go, but it's on my record label. I can't do anything about it. Uh, <laughs> You know, I was sort of thinking like that. So I thought, well, maybe try some of this Nepalese temple ball. Maybe this will solve the problem. <laughs> so I had some, and uh, I got everybody else to have some. And, I, and then I decided that we needed to wipe the tape, that it was absolute rubbish. And you should have all told me we've been flogging a dead horse. This is crap. We're not getting anywhere with it. You know, it's hopeless. And uh, I've been beaten. That's it. I'm going to have to give up. And then I thought, but what about that thing we did in the rehearsal room? The thing where we were running the Fairlight with the Lynn. Maybe we can do something with that. And we started, and like five hours later, we had the record. They had a great team of people. Lipson was brilliant, you know. So it was the bass and the... Dr and the yeah, we, we, we started off, we had a piano going, gung, 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 eights. And a, and a bass guitar going, gung, 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 gung. But the real key to it was switching the patterns on the Lynn. You go from four on the floor to that, all of that percussion. Do, do. That was a great moment. When I first did that, I was like, wow, that's great. We do that when Relax comes in and, you know, we were st it started to go, you know. But the really radical thing about that I mean, the, is, is that there's no backbeat. There's no, no snare. I know. There's no two and four. There was, but, no. And I remember a friend of mine, a drummer at the time, saying, no, 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 what make, that makes it incredibly powerful because it's like an African thing where it becomes that relentless beat. It's not broken up by a two and a four. No, 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 you're right. It, 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 exactly. I, I always thought it was a bit like a square dance, you know, like Boris dancing in a yeah. funny kind of way. Well, Buffalo Girls, you keep going back to it. <laughs> but how, did, how did the band take it when you said, sorry, lads, it, it, you're not actually going to be on it apart from Holly? Well, I didn't say it like that because all of this happened on a Tuesday and, you know, it was one of those days where, you know, I mean, the, the Nepalese temple ball was definitely getting smaller <laughs> and uh, and more and more ideas were flowing. And, of course, the next thing was, oh, God, why do we have to have that five fucking tones blue scale? I loathe, you, you know, a bloody awful thing. Why don't we use real minor chords, you know? And, of course, Andy Richards was clever because he... Instead of playing an E minor, he played a G6, you know? You said that in your book. Yeah. Uh, and that puzzles... I, I can't see what the big difference is. Well, it's E minor. It makes it E minor 7th. Yeah. You know? 
the but with a G. So G G six is 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 got a you know G B D and E. No, I know what it is. I, yeah. I know what it is. Trent. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of the D makes it a, makes it a makes sort it a of seventh, seventh. Yeah. and because you're not playing the root and the chord, it gives it a, that funny sound. You know that. Well, I hope your relationship hasn't diminished no, after no, no, this. No, no. <laughs> Bass players always have to if know. Everything has been augmented. Ah. <laughs> Bass players always have to know what the chords are doing. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, but, but just wondering what those what those boys from Liverpool came. Why aren't I on it? You know, or well, didn't it matter to them? They just saw that this was a great. Well, sound. they sang on it a bit, you know, relax and whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. well, and they jump into the swimming pool. They the jump into the swimming it. pool, yeah. Was that, was that actually a sort of a sort of stops them? Well, you do jump into the swimming pool at the beginning of it. <laughs> was at the end actually. Do you well, get that PPL was one of for jumping into a swimming pool. That right? was the only thing we used from the first session. Them jumping in the swimming pool. Yeah, the the band really liked the record, and just going back to it, it would have been so easy to have to have put Pad on the drums on it, you know, and to yeah. put Mark on the bass. Because it was nothing complicated. In fact, it was easier than their version to play. But I was so, I, you know, I was. It was at the end of it. I'd, I, I was. I'd had enough. You know what I mean? But I felt like you found a sound that represented ZTT and you. And it wasn't just about the band. This was something almost career changing, wasn't it? Oh, for them, and well, for you as well. Well, you know? to a point. But don't forget, Relax didn't come out and zoom up the charts. Ah. It came out and languished. I was in America working on Foreigner and it was just, it got terrible reviews. NME said it was another awful dance record or something like that. And I mean, I, I started to get quite depressed about it. It was only Steve Lipson who said, they're wrong, it's a classic. And I thought, well, he's a bit miserable so normally, so he must be right maybe, you know. And when I came back from America, it dropped from 53 to 54. I have to say it in the book. And everyone was like, well, it was a good try, you know. And then Dave Robinson and Jill, got, they, we got them on, uh, on back on the tube, you know, apropos and nothing. Whole, yeah. It went up to number 32, and then, uh, then we got Top of the Pops, and it just went through the roof. When I saw them on Top of the Pops, I thought they looked great. I thought the record looked really good with them. I thought the whole package made made sort of sense and and I remember the next morning Dave Robinson phoned me phoned me up and he said you know we've just sold 55,000 units I knew it was going to go mad then you know because that's a lot yeah. yeah at which point was the ban oh the ban was when it was number two it was because of something Paul Morley put it was early days with Paul and we we trusted him <laughs> I mean you know he was being you know he was being Paul and he put this whole thing on the 12 inch about lick the shit from my boots. I only saw it when it came out. And I was a little bit, mm, I wouldn't have put that on the record. And that's what um, Mike Reed read. And he threw the record across the studio and banned it. He couldn't have done us a bigger favour, really. Yeah, 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 yeah. Talking of Paul, there's a, there's a lovely way you put it in your book when you talked about the meetings that the three of you would have, you and Jill and him. You said where it's basically good cop, bad cop, insane cop. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do want to talk about Owner of a Lonely Heart, obviously, because, again, that was another <laughs> record that we all yeah. went, what? Yeah. I mean, that opening drum sample, you know, that just... And the, again, for uh, and, and it was like... 
all of your events. Yeah, you know? I mean, you know, oh, yeah. you know, oh, going, one of which I know is a bit of a dig. Going from high reverb into zero, you know, totally dry sound. Tw- yeah. You know, guitar solos, twelve in- string guitar solos on Octaviders. I mean, it's like a great, insane record. Uh, but this, yeah. you know, this was a band that I grew and up pop. with. With you know, and yeah. pop, you know, that were much more gentle and ethereal, and you were giving them something that was astonishingly rock pop, right? Yeah, yeah. It was a kind. Of, I think the only reason I managed to convince them was because I'd been in the band, you know, and I could I could really uh, dig my heels in because they didn't want to do it. It wasn't meant to be for them, you know. I heard the demo be only because Trevor Raven went to the toilet and left the tape running. Because weren't you listening to on. lots of tracks? And you were yeah, like- I listened to loads of tracks that he'd written for the for, for them. And I didn't like anything. They were all that kind of, moving in, I'm moving my love into you, you know. <laughs> which, uh, uh, it's never been love. It's never been something that I've, is interesting. It's not me. very yes either. Not very yes, I would point that out. And then... Honor of Lonely Heart came on on this tape. Trevor was in the loo, and I was like... And, you know, a lot of the gags that were on the record were on the t- original tape. You know, the big uh-huh. intro, the jump cut to the dry drums. Really? Oh, yeah. And the... And, and the, the doodly-loop, but it was on a mini-moog. Doodly-loop, you know, with a wibble wheel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they were, it was all like that. And when he came out of the loo, I said, this is number one record. I said, not with this verse. Don't like the verse. But the chorus, it's a hit chorus. And it's, you know, and he was like, no, that's not for yes, yes, can't do that. And sort of from that moment was 10 months of uh, knocking my head against the wall to some degree anyway. Chris didn't want to do it, I take it. No, Chris Chris was okay to do it. It was just getting everybody to get their heads around it because yes, had never played anything as simple as that before. <laughs> and 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 so they kept trying to complicate it, and, and we kept playing it and, and and playing it over and over again. And then finally, I remember we were in the townhouse. I arrived at the townhouse, and there was a deputation waiting for me. And Trevor, we got to talk about Owner of Lonely Heart. We think it's wrong. We don't want to do it. We've wasted days and days on it, and we just don't think it's going to work. And so I was like. You've got to do it. You've got to do it. My whole reputation depends on it. You're going to bring me down. Uh, you t- promised me that you'd have a single on this record, and it's got to be this. And I was begging them, please, 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 let me program it on a drum machine. Just let me program it. And, you know, I kept on and on. So finally, because, oh, all right, we'll give it a go. And he and I programmed it on an MPC. And... Um, Alan White. Was the MPC out then? The yeah, MPC was out, yeah. Right. It was a very early MPC 60. And uh, we programmed it on that, and uh, nobody liked it And uh, when we programmed it. But then Alan played the drums on it, and Trevor Raymond was always driving me nuts, talking about Mutt Langer and what a great drum sound Mutt Langer used to get, and, and how it was a big Leopard. snare and the whole bit. And, yeah. Oh, that was even before Def Leppard. Yeah. So to piss him off, I tuned a snare drop high like Stuart Copeland. <laughs> and, uh, and that high snare drum was an issue from the moment it was done, more or less right to the very end. Because it was very, very old-fashioned sounding, wasn't it? It was like yeah, a, a well, it was Yeah, dunk. but it, it was higher pitched up to an A. But wasn't it, there's one, one of your gags in it is a response to one of the lyrics, isn't it? To the Hawk lyrics. Oh, yeah, well, you see, I... 
the other thing about Ona was it had this terrible verse that I hated. It was so misogynistic, and I won't even sing it to you. And uh, I kept saying, we've got to do something about that verse. Hence lyrically the, or musically? Lyrically and musically. Hence all the gags. I was thinking as many gags as I can put in to distract you from how shit the verse is. <laughs> um, and uh, one day, I, you know, I said to Trevor, we've got to rewrite this verse. We've got to do it today. We've got to. And he was like, I don't see what you, what's wrong with it. And I was like, it's awful, man. We can't have that verse. And I, I didn't drink at the time, but that night I think I drank. And we were up till about three o'clock in the morning trying different things and eventually at a certain point I said we've got to write something that John's going to sing I've got to be John Anderson and I started to sing move yourself you always live your life and I wrote the, wrote the whole two verses really fast at three o'clock in the morning Is Trevor playing guitar along to uh, well we had a track we had the backing oh, right. track with oh, all the right, samples right, on right. it and everything you know and uh, I said Trevor you better do the guide vocal Better not be me, because John won't fucking like it if I'm singing on the track, you know, because he's never forgiven me for being the singer in Yes, even though I was now the producer. And and so um, Trevor sang the, the guide vocal. And the next day, which was a Friday, we played it to everybody. And they all went... We didn't play it to John, we played it to Chris and uh, Alan. And Chris went, oh, I don't know. And you know, you think, oh, oh. Jesus, man. Are we ever going to sort this track out? It's the democracy of the band. It's yeah, awful. and then on the Sunday, he phoned me up and he said, I think you got the tune right. I've just been thinking about it. I think it's right. We should get John to do it. So, of course, the next day, I played to John. And John said, what's this? And I said, it's a new verse in Under the Lonely Heart. I've sung this song. I said, I know, but we've changed it since then. Who's changed it? <laughs> right? <laughs> Who's changed it? <laughs> I said, well, uh, Trevor and me. You? Yeah, me and Trevor have you? changed it. Yeah. So anyway, he's, and I remember, he, I remember he said to me, I wouldn't care if it was fucking Sending the Clowns or a really good song. He was pretty miserable about it, but I, I was fairly firm. And, uh, and I got him to sing. I got him to sing the first verse, but he said, I don't like these lyrics on the second verse, and he rewrote most of them. And he suddenly brought out this white eagle in the sky. And I was like, Gary, where the fuck is the white eagle come from? You know? And so when John had gone, <laughs> we put a gunshot in it, we shooting the white eagle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one, this, sorry, one little aside. Sorry, just because of, there seems to be a, a couple of little mentions of John's voice um, and his speaking voice. And we want him on the show. We do want him on the show. So <laughs> yeah, this... John's, so, a, John's a terrific yeah. singer. Oh, no, yeah. it's a No, no, but only that the, I... There was this Argentinian tour manager I knew who toured with John when John did a solo <coughs> tour. And apparently... And, and he used to have to call him every morning to tell him about where the car was and everything like that. So they said, the problem is, is the guy, his, his wife was with him and they both have exactly the same voice. <laughs> and so she, and he didn't know what to say when he picked up, because he never knew who had picked up the phone. <laughs> <laughs> Trevor, this all sort of begs the question about who's, who do you prefer to, to produce, a band or a, a singer? Do you, it must, I mean, I don't want to preempt your, your, your answer. Uh, well, I mean, it's, it, it, obviously it depends on the band. The, the 
problem I have found with bands is it's it's quite hard to work with people when you can play a lot better than them. Do you know what I mean? Um, and this particularly applies when I've tried working with young bands. You know, I've I've I remember working with. I tried it a few years back. You know, a young bass player playing, and me and my engineer both around him, deadening the strings in between <laughs> while he's playing because he hasn't got any technique. He just plays, and the whole bass rings. You know, that kind of stuff. Bands can be a pain, and obviously by the you know Murphy's law, that the guy that gives you the most trouble is the least talented generally. <laughs> uh, <laughs> whereas you know when you're working with a singer. Or just like a vocal group or something, you can hire all the musicians. And when you hire the musicians, everything's fabulous, and the birds are singing, and everything's nice. Well, I know because having worked with you quite a lot, and it's something I always like, and I never know what I'm going to be doing whenever I've come in to work with you. Sometimes it's playing bass. Sometimes <laughs> it was used to get me to play acoustic guitar quite yeah. a lot. Yeah, and you had good. this great maxim, which I think is probably because you had this thing of like basically get anyone, literally anyone to play the acoustic guitar except the guitarist <laughs> because you know i remember you once said i'll have the guy delivering the pizza do the acoustic guitar before <laughs> I think, because the guitarist will go well, i can give you this or i can give you this or i can do this or how about if i do this whereas someone like me is just going to go c <laughs> yeah yeah g <laughs> which is what you want yeah most of the time yeah <laughs> God, yeah. Talking of single artists, I suppose Seal is just, you know, um, your kind of relationship with Seal has been probably the longest out of everyone you've ever worked with, isn't it, Trevor? Yeah, he's put up with me longer than anybody. But do you think, it, is it something to do with, I mean, he's got the most credible voice, but sonically, his voice sits it. I've, and I've got yeah. into, I've been in your studios when you've been working on, on, on some of those on Seal yeah. songs and listen to it. And you can just feel how his voice places within this arrangement that you create around him so beautifully. Yeah, he's got a great, he's got a lovely voice. He's one of those guys that, that whoever is singing such and such a song, he'll probably be able to sing it better. <laughs> you know what I mean? He can sing anything. He does a great Sinatra. He's a great mimic. You know, it's, it's, I suppose he he and I have the same sense of humour, like very sort of double entendre sense of humour. And sometimes if people are talking, they'll say something and you know, look at each other. Did they just really say, I can take it up the octave? <laughs> Things like that, you know. <laughs> it's a sales really funny. And and back in, you know, when I first started to work with him, I said to him, look, Celina, Really, I don't mind how many girlfriends you have in the studio, but I don't want any male friends, if you don't mind. He said, no mates, only birds. And, <laughs> and he said, why? And I said, well, it's always a... Male friends can really disrupt things. They say stuff like, oh, do you think this is good? Or this sounds a bit lush or something like that and ruin Puts the whole session. Inside. Yeah. Or can I play my demo? Yeah, something like that, yeah. <laughs> They're always a bit jealous, whereas girlfriends are generally not jealous, unless it's... Well, there's a... There's a I mean, it's an awful thing to admit, but it's in any studio situation. It's like you could almost just tell from the tape when a girl walks in the room. <laughs> yeah. Because everyone's showing off immediately, yeah. aren't they? I mean, it's why, you know, it's... It's why you became a musician, yeah. let's face it. Celia <laughs> used to have some amazing-looking girls, like... He had uh, one girlfriend out in LA who was about six foot three and she was in a cop show and she was gorgeous. And, you know, the night that he sang Show Me on the first album, 
she was sitting at his feet when he was singing it, you know. Uh, and I was working with an American engineer called Steve McMillan, who was a very conservative guy. He was one of those sort of guys who always says stuff like, you know, um, I do favor the LA-76 from 1973 because of the different tube that they use. <laughs> He's one of those kind of guys. <laughs> and, uh, and this girl was there. And I said, I said to him, gosh, she's a good-looking girl. And he says, it has always been a fantasy of mine to be gang-raped by a group of female police officers. <laughs> <laughs> she could definitely be one of them. Uh, when, when, when you're, um, He's going to be happy with that going out on this, is he? Yeah. <laughs> when you're working... <laughs> Steve... <laughs> You actually named him. There's been a lot of people you haven't yeah. named. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't think Steve, I don't think Steve will be bothered by Trevor, that. Uh, Trevor, when, you, when you're working with Seal, how quickly is it before you want the master vocal on there? Is it something that's, that is going to tell you where everything else goes? Well, with him, it's always persuading him to actually sing on the track, you know. You get the track. Hey, see, we've got the track. Mm. He's nervous. Mm, it's okay. Maybe tomorrow, you know. And I used to stay in the same house as him, and I used to catch him in his suit going out for dinner. So he just come, come on in, come on in, and sing a couple of songs, you know. I, I tried never to organise a an actual session unless it was an emergency, you know. Well, I just catch him on the fly. It was always better. And then he'd come back with a girl maybe at three o'clock in the morning, and he'd be in the mood. Hey, come on, sing these two songs again, you know. And he'd sing them and. You know, I'd, I'd always keep all of them and keep yeah. going through them, you know. You yeah. once described, I don't know if we can use, I don't want to upset anyone, but because it's one of the most brilliant descriptions I've ever heard and which I've used often. You described them as having a whim of iron. Whims of iron. <laughs> I think, I think, uh, I think we were all a lot younger then, you know. And maybe a few of us had whims of iron maybe I was just as bad your, your latest album which you supposed to talk about your latest project because it's uh, we've jumped a few decades sorry well we haven't really but it, it's it's looking back as well isn't it and and I've heard the few tracks that have been made available and they they sound absolutely amazing how do you get about approaching a song that's already been established as a massive hit and everyone knows it inside out it's not easy because as you work on the song, sometimes you find yourself thinking, God, I wish I could do it the way it is on the record because that's obviously uh, the way you do it. And you can't because you're trying to do some, bring something fresh to it. Uh, I mean, they're all songs. You know what songs are like. You know, you can do all kinds of things with them. I dragged up the Joe Jackson song because that's been a favourite of mine for yeah. years. Yeah, a it's choice. a lovely song, that, yeah. Uh, but I, I was just looking for songs with good lyrics, you know, lyrics that I liked that meant something, you know, that weren't just idiotic. And, uh, and so all the songs are really chosen from that point of view. It's, you know, a song's a song you can do. Back in the day, they, you, you know, a song would become famous and everybody would cut, you know, Sinatra, mm -hmm. Dean Martin, yeah. everyone would do their versions and different arrangers would change the chords. It's mm -hmm. the same kind of thing, isn't it, really? I mean, if anything, I Nelson Riddle was always very... There was always lots going on in his records, you know what I mean? In between each of the lines, something happened, you know? Yeah. And you still working with Anne Dudley on it? No, I haven't worked with Anne for a long time. That was an amazing relationship, though. No, we, we, we had a... I did a lot... Funny enough, in the end, I did some big shows with Anne, you know, where we'd, we'd play on, uh, you know, the, you know, 
we did a big thing with Robbie at the, you know, when he had his anniversary, we played a 13-minute medley in uh, Earl's Court. Oh. And, it's, and it's funny because, I mean, I remember we were all at the bar at the end of that show and people were talking about, who have you got in your in-ears? And Anne said, I've always got the drums and I've got you. You're generally in the right place. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Anne, Anne, you paid me a compliment. I can't believe it. <laughs> oh, it's one of those. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. I know that you've been asked this a million times, but I want to ask you my own self-interest in, in, in that who do you regret not producing? Who would you have loved to have done? Uh, I mean, I mean, I, you know, I know it sounds absurd, but I wouldn't have mind having a go at Bob Dylan at one point. Yeah. That would have been interesting. Wow. Just because it's so different from what, from what you know. And I, I, a friend of mine, who's a property developer, wrote a song based on, you know, a Desolation Row called Desolation New Row. And as a favour for him, I, I did a recording of it. I had a band for another session. And at the end of it, I said to them, we're going to do a version of Demolition, uh, Desolation Row. You guys know it, right? And we did it in one take. With me singing a guide vocal because I know it so well. I used to be a Bob Dylan. Yeah, you, you, yeah, you, could, you do a great yeah. Bob Dylan. You do a great Brian Ferry, in fact, don't you? From yeah. when you did your Top of the Pops <laughs> do, albums. Do, yeah, I used to sing him on the top. And, and, and we had such fun because it was verse after verse after verse. And you knew all the lyrics. I knew all the lyrics, yeah. And you know what it's like when you've got something like that. You have to find something different in each verse. I thought, God, I would like to have done this. You know, because he's I tell you why. No, but I get it. I get it because because Bob because Bob's a storyteller, yeah. and you kind of do that yes. in your music. That's right? something that does run through your music. Because it is is that we said this cinematic thing, the storytelling thing, always come. It comes back to that a lot. So, all right, there's one last thing I want to get onto. Um, because it's one of the. I, I'm sorry, but I think it's one of the greatest pop records of all time, and that was Tattoo. Which was just an insane... But it was Neil Tennant who said that was probably the last part record he heard where it was literally stop whatever you're doing, turn around, yeah. go to the shop, get it and listen to it for 10 hours straight. It, it was amazing. And I remember hearing that and thinking, my God, who did that? And then seeing it was you, it's like, well, of course that all the things she All the things she said. It was things she said. Yeah, great and record. Why did, great record. why did nothing else happen with them? Yeah, it's funny though, isn't it? Because... Yeah. Um, yeah. th if I was them, I would have thought, this works. I heard that in Russian, you see. I heard it originally. Well, yeah, it's really, really weird. Russian's got like 31 consonants. Um, I, 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 it was a big hit in Russia. I took it on because um, they had no money, I remember, uh, because they needed the lyric, and I wrote the lyric for it, the English lyric. Uh, because you couldn't translate the uh, Russian. The Russian translation was bullshit. It was just like, I love her, yes, 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 I'm hot, I'm hot, I'm hot. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Sexy disco, disco yeah. sexy. Disco sexy, yeah. 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 It was kind of like that. And uh, and it was one of those things where where I'd sort of dived into it. Um, and I know, that, I know that before me, they tried a couple of other producers and it didn't work out. And so... I, you know, when I, when I listened to the record, I was like, how the hell do you start with something like this? Where am I going to start? 
in the end, what I did, I wrote it. I wrote all the Russian words out phonetically, you know, and then I tried. Yeah. Anyway, any, I mean, it, it it took a while to do because they couldn't speak a word of English. And, you know, the very sort of, you know, the opening line was, "I'm in serious shit. I feel totally lost. Don't shit. I lost." You know, <laughs> it was hours and hours uh, of that kind of thing, and. In the end, we, we... Had you brought them over? Was this a psalm? Yeah, they brought him. They, they came over, yeah. And they were very sweet. Their manager was awful. And he kept getting in the way. And he'd say things to you. One time he said, you know, you're too, you're too kind. You need to be firm with them. And I was like, well, you want to do it, mate. You're going to have a go. And of course, he goes out. And within five minutes, the pair of them were crying and sobbing. And God, the God. whole session finishes, you know. <laughs> I said, it doesn't work. you just got to be patient. There's no other way. Uh, it's hour after hour. Um, but in the end, it came good because I had some really good people around me. And and when you said, why didn't I work with them? I mean, you'd think I would have done because well, you, they, you would, yeah. they sold like 7 million albums off the back of that single. Um, I mean, it was... You felt it was the one-off record. You didn't produce the whole album, did no, you? No, I produced two tracks and I played bass on a third track. But then when they came to Because it wasn't about the artist, it was about the record in many ways. It totally was, yeah. Yeah, it was about the the record. When they came to make a second album, um, they asked me if I'd do a track, and I said, well, have you got any tracks for me to do? And they said, no. Have you got a track? So I had an old song that we'd had, and I thought, well, I could do that. At least it's a decent song, and they do it. um, And I met them, and I thought... It's so strange they don't realise that all of this success was because of the effort I, I made on that one single. And they didn't seem to realise it, that they just I was just another producer they were doing a track with. Are you, are you going out on tour with this this stuff you're doing now, Trevor? Is that going to...? No, I don't think they... I don't, you know, well, not you couldn't the gather the singers together, probably. No, we'll probably do a show for it, you know. Uh, one of the good things about the tattoo record was that the first time I ever heard a, a swung beat put over a straight beat, and that was my engineer Rob Orton. He's mm. one morning when with I came with that drum fill. The well, g- it, it, which it, is it, a fantastic half time three. Yeah, well, I'll have to go back and listen now. But but we 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 put a swung drum, drum loop on top of a straight one. It was his idea? It wasn't mine, but I loved it when I heard it. You know, so it was a funny record. Well, thank you, Trevor. Yeah, no, thank, thank you, you for doing this. I think it's been Trevor Horn. Amazing yeah. to hear those stories. Great. Yeah. What? Yeah. If you want to. Yeah. Thank Trevor Horn. Trevor Horn. Yes. Come on. My Thank you, Trevor. And uh, wow. So I mean. He's been in the room, hasn't he? He's, he's been in the room. We've just been, you're all been in the room with the man who was in the room. He's been in the room with so many amazing artists and uh, I mean, shaping that particular decade. And anyway, just want to say thank you again to Cambridge Audio, really. Yes, thanks to Cambridge Audio. Uh, thanks to everyone else. Ben, who produces ben, the show. Yeah. For Gimme Sugar. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you're all regular listeners, are you? Yes? Good. Anyone's got a favourite episode for, so far? Johnny Ma. Yeah, no, yeah, which yeah. one? There's been two. Yeah. No, okay. Who? Derek Smalls, yes. <laughs> that was hard, you know, Derek Smalls. What was interesting because, it's, it's, you know, we'd done Harry Shearer before, 
But it's interesting, we're doing him, Derek Smalls, in character, which actually means we had to be in character as well for the whole thing, because we live in this world where Spinal Tap were a real band. I, I and first, I was genuinely influenced by Derek Smalls as a bass player. I first saw Spinal Tap with some of the members of Def Leppard back in Ireland in the 80s, and they thought it was real. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, thank you very much for coming along tonight. I think it's been it's really been good, good fun. Yeah, so really thank, yeah, thank you very much. And hopefully we'll be back Especially again. Especially on, on braving Storm Kieran to be here. You know, you look better on Zoom. <laughs> you smell better on Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's good night from me. And it's good night from him. Rock on Tours is produced by Gimme Sugar Productions for Warner Music Group UK.